This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I am the host of Workers' Comp Matters, and I want to welcome you to our show today. Before we start, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer Practice Management Software, dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And also, PI Now. Find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the U.S. Visit pinow.com to learn more. Well, today's show, we are featuring a special guest, Mark L. Zeinz. Mark is an attorney in Miami, Florida. He is an emeritus member of the Executive Council of the Workers' Compensation Section of the Florida Bar. He's a former vice chair of the Workers' Comp Rules Committee of the Florida Bar. He's an arbitrator for the NFL Players Association Management Council. And he is a very active practitioner in the field of workers' compensation. He has a particular case that we are going to discuss, uh, Stahl versus Hialeah Health, and its companion cases uh, that have to do with whether or not the current law involving workers' compensation in Florida is constitutional. So, Mark, I'd like to first of all welcome you to Legal Talk Network and to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Mark, I think a good place to start would be a discussion of uh, four terms that are pretty much synonymous. And I'm going to mention those four terms, which I think many of our listeners, hopefully most of our listeners, will have some familiarity with, and have you kind of give a, a discussion of what they mean, and uh, we can then go into the impact of those terms. So the terms I'm referring to uh, are grand bargain, otherwise known as a great trade-off, otherwise known as a quid pro quo, or exclusive remedy. So tell us uh, what those terms mean in the context of, of the workers' compensation statutes across the country. Uh, workers' compensation statutes are state statutes. They uh, are different in every state. And they began around 1911 with uh, statutes that uh, were tested constitutionally to determine whether or not the grand bargain, the quid pro quo, the exclusive remedy, whether those things were constitutional under the federal statutes, uh, the federal laws and the Constitution. What we're talking about is uh, not so much an agreement between labor and management, but a legislative solution to a perceived problem that people were getting hurt on the job and they became wards of the state, they became uh, welfare recipients, they, they turned to crime, uh, uh, they used uh, medical services, uh, uh, even though the injury was related to their job. So the idea was to provide a system whereby employers would provide um, less than uh, normal, by normal I mean what you would get if you sued the employer in court, uh, and uh, the employees would uh, only be allowed to collect workers' compensation. They couldn't sue their employer for negligence. Uh, so that was the trade-off. Uh, uh, some fair, adequate compensation and medical care in exchange for giving up the right to be able to go into court and sue. Workers' comp did not 
uh, have uh, certain things that you could get if you sued in court, such as pain and suffering. So employees also gave up any right to pain and suffering in order to obtain what was described as uh, fast and sure and adequate compensation. And even more importantly, the issue of whether the employee was at fault or whether the employer was at fault or whether nobody was at fault was removed from the equation that in order for somebody to collect workers' compensation benefits, albeit at a lesser amount, usually a percentage of his or her salary or wages, usually two-thirds or something like that, plus medical expenses, um, they would not have the ability to sue the employer, nor would the employer have to worry about being sued. And uh, adjudicators and claims people wouldn't be looking at who caused the accident. They'd only be looking at whether did an accident occur and whether the person is disabled. So this seems to have made sense at the time, even though it was controversial, right? Back in 1911. It was controversial because uh, uh, more than anything, uh, the challenges to the system that was set up um, came first from the employers who were uh, upset at having to pay for damages that they were not negligent in causing uh, and provide compensation to everybody hurt on the job rather than just those uh, who were negligent and who were able to sue. Right. Um, so the, the system was one that was tested in the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court said, look, you make money off of these people. You're profiting from their services. And when you hurt them, you're going to be responsible. And exactly. that's, that, that was the end of that question. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to probably fast forward over the pretty much the balance of the 20th century and get us into the 21st century. And I'm going to make the general statement that more or less this quid pro quo, this bargain where the injured worker gave up certain civil remedies in exchange for a certain um, workers' comp remedy has pretty much worked fairly well. It has survived. It is universal. It has evolved. It has changed. There have been new causes of action, new types of injuries, occupational exposures. We've, we could probably go through the decades and pick out certain landmarks that occurred. And workers' comp has also been subject to the political and economic realities of changes in the various states. When premiums get too high, we would start to see the legislatures rolling back benefits when injured workers were not, were not getting what they were due, and they had a strong political influence in the legislatures. Benefits were increased so that we've kind of moved along in the last 100 and now 104 years with ebbs and flows on a system that overall, I think we can all agree, has served the employers fairly well, has served injured workers fairly well. There's asterisks over both of those fairly wells. But something has happened in Florida that is unique to Florida, but not necessarily unique to what's been going around around the country in different pockets. So leading into the cases that you are involved in now, what happened in Florida that has changed the delicate balance of adequate, sure remuneration for a job injury in exchange for the right to sue? Uh, when the grand bargain was entered into, uh, the only way an employee could sue an employer in circuit court for an injury was to prove not only negligence, but no contributory negligence, that the employee was not even 1% responsible for his own injury. They had to prove that the injury was not caused by a fellow servant, and they had to prove that the injury was not the result of them accepting the risks of hazardous employment. Uh, 
those factors made it uh, virtually impossible for an employee to sue successfully. And that's why employers were initially upset at workers' comp, because they had to pay everybody, and the people that uh, they were negligent in causing their injuries, they would usually win in, in the, the courts. What's happened over the course of the years is, uh, I believe in every state now, I may be wrong about that, but certainly in Florida, uh, we've moved to a comparative negligence system, and therefore what would have been the result of a suit in the early part of the 20th century as a, a, a zip for the employee now gives the employee a much greater opportunity to collect in a negligence suit. But when that happened in Florida, and this was in 1973 when by uh, ruling of the Supreme Court, Florida changed from a contributory negligence state to a comparative negligence state, that change should have uh, uh, engendered additional benefits to working people because what they traded away has now become much more valuable than it was in, in 1911. Uh, but for the most part, uh, increases in compensation did not come about when uh, changes were made to the tort system. So as you moved from the 70s, and you're right, even in Massachusetts where I practice, it was, I think, in 1972, uh, we also moved from a contributory negligence as a bar to recovery to a comparative negligence. Uh, but has the actual benefit levels, if they've not increased in Florida, have they decreased more recently so as to make this breach of the grand bargain more, uh, uh, more significant? Uh, Florida is kind of unique. Uh, Florida um, had a constitutional convention around 1968 and a new con constitution was ratified by the citizens. And the thinking was that uh, any statutes that were in effect at the time of that constitution and any case law that was in effect at the time of that constitution uh, could not be changed or, or uh, repealed uh, without a showing of a great public necessity. So uh, in 1968, Florida, because its constitution before 68 and after 68, considered the right to trial by jury to redress damages, they considered it an inviolate right. And it's the only right in the Declaration of Rights in Florida that is termed inviolate. So the people who passed the original compensation laws in Florida in 1935 left in a provision that allowed an employee or an employer, merely by giving notice, uh, to the other and to the state to opt out of coverage of the workers' compensation law and have their right to a trial by jury. And that's the way the system was in 1968. But in 1970, the legislature repealed the right to opt out and also didn't provide any additional benefits or any replacement for it. So when Florida became a comparative negligence state in 1973, the value of the trade change considerably, and you would expect more employees uh, to opt out, but of course, then the right had been repealed, and they were stuck with uh, not only uh, no opportunity for a jury trial, but benefits at pretty much the whim of the legislature. And has the, uh, has the legislature exercised its whim to the detriment of injured workers since then? Well, um, that was a question that was posed in 1970 uh, during the Nixon administration when OSHA was 
uh, passed to provide workplace safety. Part of the original OSHA uh, law was a provision requiring uh, that a commission be appointed to study whether or not workers' compensation benefits and procedures were adequate. And that commission worked from 1970 to 1972 and reported to the president, and, and it's significant that they reported unanimously, and the commission, of course, included members of all the stakeholders, uh, uh, unions, management, uh, insurance, uh, judiciary, educators, uh, everybody got together and somehow came up with a unanimous decision that in 1972, workers' compensation laws in the United States were inadequate. And they listed in their report the things that needed to be uh, in a workers' compensation law to make it an adequate replacement remedy. And these are the what's known as the so-called essential recommendations. So let's just uh, uh, fast forward uh, ahead. As a result of their recommendations, were some changes made in Florida? Some changes were made in Florida uh, to account for the fact that this report of the National Commission suggested that there might be a reason for a federal takeover of state workers' comps, pretty much the same way as uh, um, minimum wage is a federal law. Uh, they wanted to make statutory minimum standards for state workers' comp laws. And the states, in order to avoid uh, federal involvement said, we'll do better. And in 1974 in Florida, they did uh, approve amendments, uh, which were the last ones in Florida, intended to benefit injured workers. But surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, most of those improvements have been wiped out by later amendments taking well, away benefits. That's what I am getting to. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to have you describe briefly what those changes were that were detrimental. And then what I want to do is pick up on three cases, one of which you are counsel for, uh, and have you describe these three cases that are currently pending at the appellate level in Florida and the ramifications of those cases. And I think it was good to have this historical overview so that uh, give us just an idea, what are the issues or what is the single issue in the three cases that are currently pending? I'll use the names of the plaintiff, Westfall, Castellanos, and Stahl. Uh, I know they have varying uh, facts on each of the case, but essentially what is the essential issue in those three cases? The essential issue in all three cases is the adequacy of the benefits being provided. Uh, is, is the compensation system an adequate replacement for the tort system which it supplanted? And that uh, covers virtually all the issues in the three cases. So having said that, we are going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. And when we return with attorney Mark Elzines from Miami, Florida, we will examine uh, the issues currently pending in the great state of Florida. Be right back. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, Case Pacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Case Pacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. 
Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. This is Alan Pierce. I am here with attorney Mark Zeintz from Miami, Florida. And we are now getting into a discussion of three cases, uh, Westfall, Castellanos, and Stahl, um, that are in one way or another before the Florida Supreme Court. Can you give us an idea of how those cases got there? What was the initial uh, cause of action in the lower trial courts that gave rise to um, an appeal that is now uh, pending in the Supreme Court of Florida? And there are two ways to get an issue like this before the Supreme Court. One is by filing a uh, declaratory relief action. The other is by uh, appealing an adverse ruling from the offices of the judges of compensation claims, which are our adjudicators in Florida. They are not uh, circuit court or county court judges or administrative law judges, and they don't have the authority to rule on constitutional issues. So if you try a case which has some uh, complaint about the the Florida Constitution, uh, usually let the compensation judge know, well, we're going to be raising this when we appeal to the Intermediate Court of Appeal, which in Florida is the first district court of appeal in Tallahassee. And each of these cases took the route of a a hearing before a compensation judge and an appeal on constitutional grounds to the first district court of appeal. So in terms of the hearing before the, the workers' compensation judge in Florida, was it the position of the claimant that workers' compensation as it existed in Florida was no longer constitutional in that it did not provide the type of adequate remedy that was envisioned by the framers of the workers' comp law in 1935 and established uh, by the National Commission that it no longer was sufficient to allow the employer to be immune from a lawsuit? Is it, Am I summarizing that properly? Uh, yes. One of the uh, major attacks uh, by the legislature and the Chamber of Commerce and, and uh, the uh, Associated Industries Group, uh, was on uh, attorney's fees. Florida is um, not unique, but in a small group of, of uh, states that allow for a, an attorney's fee to be paid by the employer or the insurance carrier uh, if they haven't provided the benefits within 30 days of the uh, claim for them, and they ultimately lose at trial, then they're responsible for attorney's fees and costs. And the uh, statute uh, up until around uh, 1990, uh, I'm sorry, up until 2003, uh, provided that uh, you either got a percentage of the benefits obtained, and there was a schedule in the statute, or you got uh, a reasonable hourly fee, uh, depending on the circumstances of each case. So in 2003, which is the, the major amendments that we're attacking in all three cases, uh, the legislature said, no, you can only get the 
a percentage allowed by the statutory fee, you can no longer get an hourly fee. Well, that meant that employees with low value cases would not be able to get representation. An appeal on that issue went to the Supreme Court, and in 2008, the Supreme Court said, no, uh, the statute still uses the word reasonable, so we're going to say that uh, the attempt to limit it to just the statutory fee schedule uh, is not uh, appropriate. Immediately, in the next legislative session in 2009, uh, the legislature repealed the word reasonable. So uh, thereafter, all fees uh, have been awarded only on a percentage of the benefits. And the percentage that the legislature has set up is around 10%. And uh, again, low value cases or even higher value cases where the defense puts up a, a really staunch uh, defense and, and runs you all over the place, so you, you really can't afford to do it for 10% of the benefits. Yeah, and that, that's only if you win. And, and I, I'm going to posit that the defense attorneys have no limitation on what they can charge, and they get paid whether they win or lose. So, that, And that's one of the problems. It's not an even playing field. That's what I was getting at. Okay, so that, that generated uh, one case, uh, which I think is Castellanos, the case that deals primarily it's with the Castellanos, attorney. Castellanos, where, where the trial judge said, I have to award you uh, X number of dollars because that's the fee schedule. Um, but uh, if there was no fee schedule, you would get a reasonable fee substantially higher than that. And uh, I think the fee amounted to somewhere around $6 an hour for what the judge felt were a reasonable number of hours to handle in, in prosecuting the claim. Less than um, um, the minimum wage. All right. So let, tell, tell us a little bit. Walk us through the facts uh, as much as you can on the stall case. Now, you're counsel for the claimant plaintiff install, Hialeah Health, I believe, is the employer. Tell us uh, a little bit of why that case has attracted uh, the appellate um, docket and and uh, what's currently the issue before the Florida Supreme Court in your case. Well, even though the, the statutory amendment took place uh, effective October 1, 2003, uh, which uh, eliminated all compensation for what we call permanent partial disability, in the tort scheme, it would be called uh, future loss of wage earning capacity. Uh, it, it's a big sector of, of the benefits that employees are supposed to get when they can no longer return to a job that pays the same thing as that uh, were at when they were hurt. So um, Stahl was a nurse at Hylia Hospital. He happened to be injured because his employer was cutting back on help and there weren't enough people to transfer patients in the operating room safely and he herniated a disc in his back. It became inoperable and uh, thereafter Stahl could no longer perform the duties of, of a nurse. He couldn't do any of the lifting. He was paid impairment benefits for what's called a 6% impairment which amounted to slightly over $5,000 at his compensation rate and then nothing. And he said it's inadequate for a statute not to have some compensation for permanent partial disability. That's one of the most important parts of a workers' compensation law. But it took, uh, as you can see, about 12 years, 12 to 13 years, to get the matter in the position where it got before the Supreme Court. And what is it that the Supreme Court is going to decide? Are they going to decide, uh, first of all, they can't legislate, so they can't uh, award something that isn't in the statute. So is it the theory that if the statute doesn't provide an adequate remedy for this particular harm, that the statute should be unconstitutional and that the employer uh, could be then sued in tort for those damages? 
Yeah, that's it. The, the, the last of the four terms that you mentioned when we opened this uh, podcast was that of uh, the exclusive remedy. And our position is if the statute's not an adequate replacement, then uh, it should not be the exclusive remedy. And that, of course, would give employees after an injury the right to make a decision on whether to collect workers' comp benefits as meager as they are or uh, to go into the tort system and sue their employer. Or, or it could result in the legislature having to take another look at the benefit levels and bring them up to an acceptable level. I don't know if that's one of the end games that the parties are seeking, uh, whether the Supreme Court, if they view this as a breach of the grand bargain or the great trade-off, uh, do you foresee they might suggest that the legislature, they may grant the relief suggesting that this is likely to be the state of the law until and unless the legislature properly um, addresses the de deficiencies in the workers' comp statute? Uh, I can tell you that there have been any number of cases uh, out of the first district court of appeals which have suggested to the legislature that they do something about the inequalities and the inequities in the current comp statute, and the legislature has soundly ignored them. Even the Supreme Court, in uh, pre-1968, before the Constitution, had a case where the employee exhausted his 350 weeks of temporary benefits and still hadn't gotten as well as he was supposed to get, what they call maximum medical improvement. And the compensation carrier cut off his benefits, even though he was still totally disabled and receiving treatment. And the Supreme Court said, well, this 350 weeks is inadequate, and the legislature uh, should do something about it. Uh, but uh, they never did at that point, and then ultimately, that 350 weeks is now reduced to a maximum of 104 weeks. All right, so it's even, it's even gone down by over a third, uh, over two-thirds. Yeah. More than that, because when the 350 weeks was in effect, after 350 weeks, you could get another five years of temporary partial disability benefits, and you could also get up to 52 weeks a year of vocational rehabilitation benefits. And now all three of those categories are lumped into 104 weeks. Well, I know, uh, having monitored these cases from afar, that not only uh, are you facing uh, challenges from a, a much more well-funded opposition, but there, I, I know there have been amicus curiae briefs filed with the Florida Supreme Court. I know the organization to which we both belong, Willig, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, has filed an amicus brief on the stall matter. Uh, and uh, I'm imagining that on the industry and employer and management side, a lot of people are looking at this, and there are amicus briefs um, on that issue as well. So this, these cases have attracted a lot of attention, have they not? Yes, they have. Even the uh, attorney general for the state of Florida has finally uh, jumped into this uh, and uh, filed an amicus brief on behalf of Hialeah Hospital. Um, the Insurance Council, American Insurance Association, National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, and property and casualty insurers, along uh, with uh, Associated Industries, the Chamber, Florida Chamber of Commerce, I could go on and on. These are the groups that have filed uh, amicus briefs on behalf of Okay, so this is a work in progress, Mark. I want to thank you for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters. I want to thank you for championing the rights of uh, Mr. Stahl and all the other clients that you represent and uh, hope that uh, 
Florida somehow resolves this mess, and it can only be viewed as a mess, by addressing um, all of these issues. Because what's happening in Florida is starting to happen. I think you're both, we're all aware that there are other states in which benefits have been steadily reduced over the last 5, 10, 20 or more years since the National Commission, which was almost 40 years ago. And those of us who are who represent injured workers and in workers comp matters, we try to present a balance on this, this show, but it is the, the, the field of law that we, we are involved in is called workers compensation. And I think is, there's no secret that work, the name workers comes first and the name compensation goes along with it. And when the compensation no longer adequately favors the workers, uh, that something has to be done. So I want to thank you for your advocacy. We will be watching these issues closely, and uh, I w- thank you very much. If, if somebody wants to contact you, Mark, very quickly, um, tell us how somebody could reach you, maybe your website. Uh, the website is uh, www.mzlaw.com. Uh, and uh, in Florida, I can be reached at my office number, 305-670-6275. All right. Well, once again, on behalf of Legal Talk Network, on behalf of Workers' Compensation Matters, this is Alan Pierce saying thank you for listening and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.